What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The title of my message today is, is, a, is a modern title, obviously. It's called Hashtag The Blessed Life. But before we get into this, Hashtag The Blessed Life, I have a pop quiz for you. Just what you wanted on the week of Thanksgiving. I have seven questions I want to ask you. And after we go through these questions, then I'm going to share with you the answers. But the first question is this. Who wrote the Psalms? Just think about it in your mind now. You don't need to shout it out or blurt it out. Just think about this question. Number two is, which Psalm is the oldest? You ever think about that? Well, I'm inviting you to think about that today. Then think about this. Which psalm is the shortest? Some of you probably will know this one. This is probably the one that you might know or the next one. What is the longest psalm? Yeah. Two separate psalms, kind of very close to the middle of the psalm, or the Bible, middle of the Bible at least. And then, do you ever think about this? How many times are the psalms quoted in the New Testament? And then... Number six, what is the purpose of the Psalms? Is it, is it just these writers back in the day were singing Kumbaya by a fire and they're writing these Psalms? And then the last one, we're going to kind of zoom in and focus on Psalm 1 today. But, but why is Psalm 1 the first Psalm? These are seven questions that my, maybe you know some of them. Maybe you know most of them. Maybe you know none of them. But I want to invite you to look at the answers now. The first question is, who wrote the Psalms? The reality is, is we don't know exactly how many authors wrote the Psalms. And I know you're probably sitting there thinking like a little five-year-old, Jesus wrote the Psalms. And you wouldn't be wrong, obviously. But more specifically, the Holy Spirit of God gave the words to these human penmen. But what we do know is at least seven psalmists are mentioned by name. The most popular one is, of course, David. Then you have Solomon. You have Heman. You have Ethan. You have Asaph, the sons of Korah. And least of all, the you might think of Moses. And so obviously you might know this list, the oldest one on the list, the one who goes back the furthest is, well, it's not David. It's not the sons of Korah. It's not Solomon. It's actually Moses. So if Moses is the oldest character here, then obviously we know that he wrote the oldest Psalm. And if you go to Psalm 90, you don't need to do it right now, but maybe you can go to it later. You'll realize that the, the little uh, superscription right before the Psalm, it speaks about how Moses is the human penman going back sometime around 1400 to 1500 B.C. The shortest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 117. Two simple verses, a declaration of of people of all ages and stages, of all nations and tribes and creeds to worship God. The longest is, of course, Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. In fact, one of these services, we might just read it and that'll be the sermon. Who knows? The question that I asked you earlier is how many times is the book of Psalms quoted in the New Testament? Many of you might think that the Psalms is the largest, or as the Psalms is the most often quoted book in the New Testament, which in reality it is not. 
We know of at least 77 times the book of Psalms is mentioned some point between Matthew and Revelation. The only other book, does anybody know it? We're studying it on Wednesdays. It is the book of Isaiah is the uh, only other book that has more. And 85 times at least Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. Psalms is right there with it. Then the purpose of the book of Psalms is not to sit around the campfire and to sing Kumbaya. It is not to think back on the, the, uh, the, the pilgrimage that the people had to cross Atlantic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean and sit down and we look back on the week of Thanksgiving and think about those pilgrims and their first meal for Thanksgiving. It's at that time that we, the purpose is not to just open up Psalm 100 and read it this week. The purpose of the book of Psalms is for the people of God to worship God because of his amazing faithfulness and his amazing greatness. That's the purpose of this book. And this book is going to point us to God's saving redemption through the Messiah. And we'll see so many times through the book of Psalms in these 150 little prayers and songs that were sung and prayed many, many years ago of how it's revealing to us the Messiah. But why, if Psalm number one in my American mind is not the, the oldest psalm, why in the world is it placed at the beginning of the Psalter? I mean, in our mindset, we are chronological in the way we think. We want to say what was written first should be first. And what was written last should be last. We're going to walk through the Psalms in a chronological way. What was written then and then what was written further or closest to us today. But the reality is it's not how the editor of the book of Psalms organized it. In fact, I believe Psalm number one is strategically placed here to remind the people of God to meditate upon the word of God. Of course, we worship God. We worship the God who gave us his word as well. And the only way we can better worship God is if we spend time studying and meditating in the word of God. And so today, I want you to understand this. Hashtag the blessed life is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you want a blessed life, you've got to understand it comes from meditating and spending time in the scriptures because in the scriptures, you're going to get to know God. And this God that we are studying about and reading about is the God of the universe who gave us a life to begin with. So the key central thought I have for you today is the blessed life is only found in Jesus Christ. What we will discover to this morning and tonight is this psalm is a, comparing, is a comparison between a life that is blessed and a life that is cursed. So the blessed life will lead you from God's word to God himself. But a cursed life will push you away from God, away from God, and away from God into eternity separated from God. This psalm is, is a comparison between the, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly. This is a psalm that is a, a comparison about how to become prosperous and how to not be full of prosperity. It's a way that Jesus spoke about the narrow way versus the broad way. 
So the very first psalm here, even though it was not the first psalm ever written, and even though some have attributed David to being the human penman, we just don't really know because it doesn't specifically say. But what we do know is at one point in time, way back when, in the Old Testament time period, God moved an individual to write down this psalm as a prayer to God and as a declaration by the word of the spirit of inspiration to declare that we can be blessed if we follow the pathway found in Scripture. So if you want to be blessed this Thanksgiving, you don't need to watch the Cowboys play the Lions. You don't need to to make sure you get your turkey that's not dry, but it is moist. You don't need to make sure that you get your nice pumpkin pie or apple pie or green beans or your stuffing or whatever you're going to eat. Maybe you're going to go to McDonald's. I don't know. You're going to get Chinese. I don't know what you're going to get this this Thanksgiving. But whatever it is, the purpose of of the blessed life is not surrounded by the Thanksgiving dinner table. The the, the blessed life is, is found at the table of the manna of God's holy word. So if you would today, I want to ask this question. How can we live a life that is blessed? This psalm is declaring to us, this man or this woman is blessed by doing these things. And the complete opposite is, if we don't do these things found in verses 1, 2, and 3, then we will actually be cursed. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not desire to be cursed by God. In fact, the... the, the, Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, it mentions that the Israelites would be blessed by God when they would follow his commands and they would be cursed or judged and chastened by God if they did not follow his commands. So if you would, I want to share with you three thoughts today. One thought from verse 1, one thought from verse 2, and one thought from verse 3 about how we can live a blessed life. Would you look at verse number 1 with me? Would you say the very first word with me? Blessed. Say it again. Blessed. One more time, please. Blessed. This, by the way, is the key word in this psalm. Everything hinges upon this very first word, and it literally means a life that is blissfully happy underneath the word of God and God himself. Blissful happiness. Happiness that cannot be compared by the temporal pleasures of this age. So number one, here's the first thought. How can we live a life that is blessed? Well, number one. Live the blessed life through daily consecration. Live the blessed life through daily consecration. It is in this particular verse that the psalmist is is comparing the pathway of the wicked, the pathway of sinners, and the pathway of the ungodly scorners. And he's saying, if you do not wish to walk in their way, then you perhaps desire to walk in the way of God. In verse number one, I can't help but think of this idea of consecration, this idea of holiness, this idea of being set aside to be used by God. You know, this building is, there's really nothing ultimately fancy about this building. There's nothing magical about this facility. Now, certainly we don't have multi-million dollar chandeliers hanging down from the ceiling. We don't have, you know, the latest and greatest pew there. I assure I've heard your thoughts about those pews. Uh, You might be a fan of the pew family, but you are probably not a fan of that particular pew family because it's not the most comfortable pew that you have ever sat on. I get it. 
I get it. This is not the most glorious and splendid facility. But this facility, even though it's not the most glorious and most um, elaborate facility, it is a facility that's been set aside for the use of worshiping God and studying His Word. And today we can be thankful that we have a place that has air conditioning, a place that has heating, a place that has fans when we get a little hot, a, a place that has lighting so we can see. A place that has power, a place that has running water so we can use the bathroom and get some of the nice water to drink and quench our thirst. But, but listen, as this building has been consecrated for the use of the gospel and his kingdom, God's kingdom, our lives are to be consecrated to be used by God and his kingdom. And we see that in verse number one. Do you wish to be blessed or happy or blissfully blessed by God? Well, it's only found by doing the opposite here of what's speaking of. It's speaking about a man who walks in the counsel of the ungodly. So consider this. Be consecrated to God by associating with him. Notice the word walk. This, of course, literally means you, got, you, you, you stand up and you begin to walk with your own two legs, one right in front of the other. No, this is not a walking lesson today, but you need to make sure you're getting your steps in because we live in an age where we're constantly sitting down on the couch. We sit down in our car. We sit down in our job. We're constantly sitting down. So if we want to get our steps in, we've got to actually make time to do it. But the context here is not speaking about somebody who literally is walking with someone. It gives the idea of a symbolic walking, an allegorical walking, and that is you're walking in the counsel or the advice of ungodly sinners. Now, the Bible actually admonishes us to not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Remember that king of the Old Testament Israelites? I believe his name was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam decided he wanted to get counsel from the older men and the younger men. And the older men said, hey, don't make them work as hard as your father did, the one before you. Lighten their load. And the younger guys said, nah, let's, light, let's make their load heavy. And what it did is it brought reproach upon him. And so there's times you might be stuck at a place in the road where you're like, should I turn right? Should I turn left? Should I go straight? Which direction should I go? Well, in your associations, it implies you will be influenced by those you're around. If you hang around me a whole lot, then you're eventually going to go to Chipotle. Yes, you are. <laughs> if you hang around me, you're eventually going to ride in a beat-up Chevy Cobalt. <laughs> that might get a flat tire every now and then or something. You're gonna, if you're going to spend time around me, eventually we're going to open up God's Word and we're going to at least have a conversation about Jesus. But there are certain people out there that you can spend time around and they're going to take you to another restaurant. They're going to take you to another place. They're going to talk to you about other things than the Word of God. The idea is here is that if we want to be close to God, we're going to associate with people that desire to get close with God. And that begins by this great counseling resource that we have. Not Dr. Phil, not Oprah Winfrey, not the psychiatrist or whoever. Our greatest counselor, although those people might give us some aid every now and then, our greatest source of counseling is found in God's holy word. And so if you want direction for your life, we've got to open up God's word and associate with him. 
Now, when you begin to associate with, it, with this concept of uh, the ungodly, what it will eventually take place is as you associate with them, eating meals with them and spending time with them, you're going to eventually be influenced by them and then you will agree with them. So the next phrase here, it speaks about walking here, but then it speaks about standing in the way of sinners. Now the word way here, it gives the idea of a road. This does not mean that, that you're standing in a road like we're going to go across 220 over here. We're just going to all link arms and we're going to stand there so that nobody can drive through us unless they hit us. It's not what it means. It gives the idea of a figurative meaning that you're going to be standing in the same agreement with these sinners. Now, the word sinner here, it just simply means somebody who's offended the law of God. They've broken God's law. And listen, that's all of us. Extra, extra, read all about it. We have all come short of God's glory and we have sinned in his presence. And the only way to be redeemed is through Jesus. But we, we can be consecrated to God by not just associating with him, but agreeing with him. So we agree that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is unlike any other document. It has a long paper trail that leads us all the way, to the back, all the way back to the beginning of written language. That's how old this book is that you have in your hand. It's amazing. In fact, scholars say we have an embarrassment of evidence concerning the Bible. Because no other document compares to how much tangible physical evidence we have that reminds us God gave us his word. So we've got to agree with him. But the reality is, is we're either going to associate with God and agree with him, or we're going to associate with the, the enemy and his company and then agree with him. <clears throat> then it says, we're going, to, we're going to associate, we're going to agree and then what happens after you agree? You begin to look, talk, and act like these ungodly, scorning sinners. So the opposite is this. Be consecrated to God, not just by agreeing with Him and associating with Him, but acting like God. Now, I don't think this verse is telling us that we need to go and, and put a cross on our back and quit our day job. And, and if you're in college, drop out of school and go walk along the highway from Virginia all the way to California. That's not what it's saying here. It's not what it means by taking up the cross. I believe what it means is taking up the, the whole idea of what Jesus means and then living accordingly. It does not mean you need to go in your backyard and set up three crosses and stand in the middle and be nailed to it. That's not what it means. In fact, Jesus was already nailed to the cross. Therefore, nobody else needs to be sacrificed on the cross. And this particular text is given the idea that you're walking with somebody, you have this conversation, that you're influencing each other, then you're going to stand and wow, wow, all right, we're in agreement, we're locking arms, and you're just going to sit down, you're going to park it there. You're going to act like each other eventually. In fact, the person that you are most alike is most likely your parents. Because your parents spend so much time associating with you that eventually you are influenced by them and then you begin to, well, maybe not in every area of your life you agree with them, but, but you begin to agree more with them the older you get and then what happens is the older you get, the more you act like them. I realize the older I get, the more I act like my dad, for sure. The more I act like my parents in many areas. But when I was younger, I tried my best not to. Just like you did. 
But the reality is, is, is there's people out there who's going to spend time acting more like the world instead of acting like God. And so I urge you today, let us, let us receive the blessed life by acting like our God. We should display compassion to our world. We should show love to those around us. We should give to the needy and help the poor. And we should go into all the world and share the gospel with all those that we know and don't know. The blessed life is only found in Jesus Christ. God is calling us to consecration to himself. But then I like verse 2 because it doesn't end there. Verse number 1 mentions this idea about being daily consecrated to God. But in verse number 2, it presents the idea about daily meditating in the Word of God. So secondly, how can we live a life that is blessed? Number 2, live the blessed life through daily meditation. And no, I do not mean going up onto a mountain and living at a monastery for 35 years of your life and, and sitting in an in a Indian style and humming and closing your eyes. I do not mean that by any way, shape, or form. Meditating means to muse, to ponder, to think upon, to dwell. It's like if I said, Jesus is the Son of God. Go think about that. Well... You're going to go and you're going to think about Jesus is the Son of God. You're going to meditate upon that thought. Dwell upon it. Well, that's the idea here. In verse number two, it says, But delight himself, or excuse me, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Would you say the word meditate with me? Meditate. Say it again. Meditate. And now the word delight. Delight. One more time. Delight. So, the idea is simply this. Have you ever heard of this technical term called hedonism? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Let me enlighten you. The word hedonism is simply a term that is describing somebody who lives to seek pleasure. So there is this idea of being a Christian hedonist. And I can get along with it if it means this. My greatest source of delight and pleasure is found in God and his word. And if that's what you mean by that, I'm on the same page. But if, but if you mean by a hedonist that you're going to live to live after all the different pleasures of life, whether it is physical or emotional or whatever, then my friend, that is not what we are to live after. We are to live after God being our greatest source of pleasure as a Christian. But here it says that our great delight, our great pleasure should be in meditating in the word of God. Now, years ago, when I was a teenager, one of my chores at the house growing up was to take care of the garden. And I decided one year, I was going to do the garden myself. I was. And you might be laughing in your mind, but it was actually one of the best gardens we ever had. Because I, 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 I treated that garden like a baby, like a little infant. I went to the store. I bought the manure that you needed to buy. And there I was spreading manure in the garden. We got the tiller out and we, we, we tilled the manure inside the soil. We, we got the, the, all the different, the, like the hose and the rakes and all the other uh, essential needs that you need, the tools to go in and to, to build a mound for the cucumbers and for the watermelons and all those different things and, and make a row for the corn and the beans and, and then all the tomato plants. And we put them in there. And then I would go in and I would pull the weeds out. I would take water up there. I would water the plants. And eventually, you know what's interesting? What happened? It began to produce in a great way. And the idea is simply this. The link between verse 2 and verse 3 is those who meditate in God's word will be prosperous like a garden. 
But in that garden in my parents' backyard, if you could just imagine, there's a garden back there, I'm tending the garden, but across the road, there was a cow farm. Mooing and mooing and mooing. They eat weird. You know their jaw like, go like this. It's so weird. They do what's called chew the cud. You know what that is, right? They have multiple stomachs inside of them. And just imagine, just imagine. Please don't do this at the lunch table today. But imagine they're out in the field eating that grass. And they chew it up and they swallow it. But then it comes right back up and they chew it up and they swallow it again. And it comes right back. They do that multiple times. That's what it means to chew the cud. And this term meditation here in the text implies that just as a cow chews the cud and eats that grass over and over again, we are going to get into God's word over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's not like this, oh, well, I read the book of Revelation one time, therefore I'm a scholar and I've got a PhD in that book. No, actually, sorry, you don't. And even if you ever get a doctorate, you've not mastered that subject in your life. Because the only one that has the whole Bible mastered is the one who gave it to us, God. And so daily, we are to be meditating in God's word. And our great delight should not be found in Sports Illustrated or the New York Times or some other book like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or whatever. And, and listen, there, there are certainly a time to read different works of literature. But our greatest source of pleasure should be meditating in God's Word day and night. Now check it out now. This idea of living the blessed life through daily meditation implies that we will delightfully meditate on God's word by pondering it. We're going to just think about it. Remember in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema is what they say in the, in the Hebrew culture, is this idea of hear, O Lord, the, the Lord our God is one Lord, and, and, and it goes in to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There it is, and there it is. It's something that they live by, but it also spoke about how they would write the word of God on their foreheads. They would put the the word of God upon the doorpost. They would put the word of God in a different place of their house. In other words, they're going to spend time meditating and pondering and thinking about God's word. I'm so convicted when I read verse 2 because of how much attention we give to meditating upon a television show or a movie or this or that or some other thing instead of God's word. The more we fill our mind with God's word, the more God will transform our mind to be more like his son, Jesus. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates day and night. Sure, you can meditate by pondering it, but then, then you also, you know, you meditate in God's word by studying it. And that could mean you, 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 you see the word blessed here in verse number one, and you look up every other time that word is mentioned in the, in the English Bible. Then you, you figure out, well, what is this Hebrew word here? And then you look up that Hebrew word every single time it's found in the Hebrew Bible. And then you begin to look up other key words, and, and you begin to, to cross-reference. You begin to do all these things. Then you could get out a, a, a commentary, perhaps, and read what somebody else said about it, or get your study Bible out, all those different things. And, and here, the idea is that we are going to spend time intentionally reading and studying God's Word so we get to know God better. 
Then it says day and night. Similar language to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think it's very convicting for us as Americans because our idea of meditating in God's Word is to get, up, get out the Jesus Calling book and spend about one minute meditating on one verse or we get our daily bread. Not that, I'm not saying these in of itself are bad, but we read our little 500 words, our little three to five minutes a day of just reading this verse and, and we spend more time reading what other people have said about that verse and just actually dwelling upon that one verse. Wouldn't it be better is if, if you are going to use something like daily bread or something like that, you get a little index card and you write out that one verse and you keep that verse with you all day and you get it out and you read it over and over and over and over again and meditate on it or even memorize it and study it to try to figure out what is being meant by this verse. Well, we can delightfully do all these things, but then, listen, you can't think about God's word and spend time in God's word without a desire to share God's word. Those who go off at a monastery are doing a noble thing. They're going up there to just study God's word for the rest of their life. And that is a noble task. It is. But the last time I read the New Testament, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Excommunicate me if I'm wrong, please. But the last time I read the New Testament, I do not remember reading to go off into the wilderness and stay in the wilderness for the rest of your life. Sure, you might take a season, it's a, a, a period of time where you're going to go and you're going to intentionally just get to know God better. But Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, went into the wilderness. But after those 40 days, he came out. And you know what he did for three, three and a half years? He ministered God's word to people and changed the world. And today, we're called to do something similar. We are called to each day spend time in God's word and each day go out and share God's word. So delightfully meditate in God's word by sharing it. We share everything. We share, you know, which bank has the highest interest rates for CDs. We share, you know, which telephone company has the best deal and the best bang for your buck. We share all these things, and it can be very helpful. But the greatest thing we could ever share is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How the Bible reveals to us that God loved us in such a way that he sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that we could live with him forever in eternity. Let's meditate on that. Let's consecrate ourselves to God because the blessed life is only found in Jesus Christ. But now, may I draw your attention to verse 3? Would you look at this verse with me? I want to read it to you. It says, And he shall, who's this speaking of? I believe this is speaking about a blessed man. The blessed man, or the blessed woman, if you will. Going back to verse number 1 and verse number 2. Now, let me just pause here and just say this, is that nobody in of themselves can perfectly and completely live out verses 1 and 2. So there is this idea that the blessed man, the ultimate blessed man, is the Messiah who came and delightfully, fully delighted and fully was satisfied and found pleasure in the word of the Father. And so he shall be like a tree, he the blessed man, so perhaps the Messiah himself directly and perhaps you and me indirectly. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also will not wither or fail away or die. And whatever he does is going to prosper. 
I love this verse because it reminds us of not just consecration to God in verse 1, not just meditation in God's Word in verse number 2, but thirdly, live the blessed life through daily multiplication for God. I was telling you about that garden in the backyard, how I got it started and got it going. And yeah, it began to produce, and it did. And we had tomatoes that we couldn't eat till kingdom come, and it was crazy. We had, maybe you're from the south, perhaps. I am from Boone's Mill, but I say squash. I say yellow squash. I don't say yellow squash. <laughs> but some of you might do that, and I cast no judgment upon you, okay? I don't, I don't. But whether you like the green squash or the yellow squash, we know that if you plant that seed in the ground and you nurture it and you water it, eventually it's going to bring out some more squash or squash. Doesn't it sound weird for me to say that? It does for me at least. But it doesn't sound weird for other people most of the time. In verse 3, it speaks about this tree is likened, an illustration, this this. Simile, this figure of speech of comparing the blessed man to a tree, this blessed man or woman is like a tree that is planted by a body of water because it is receiving nutrients from the water source so that it could effectively grow and the seed could bear fruit. As I read this verse, I'm reminded that we don't meditate in the word of God in of ourself alone. We do it so that we can multiply and share it with others. Because the more I dwell upon the life and ministry of Christ, the more I dwell upon God's amazing providential hand in the history of his word and giving it to us, the more I can't do anything else but go out of these four walls and say, Jesus is the son of God. You need to get right with him before it's eternally too late because he died on the cross for the sins of the world and all those who put their faith in him can't come to faith in him. So when we, as we read this verse, it's, it's, it's this idea of multiply your faith in God by producing for God. Now, I'm not saying you need to become a factory machine and you need to be producing yourself in a factory style. But what I am saying is that when we begin to meditate in God's word, it will stir us to invest in others. You can do that in other ways than just doing what I'm doing today. And I urge you, invest in others. then I believe this verse, verse 3, implies that, that yes, it's bringing forth in a season. That, that we're sowing seed out there, and when God sees fit, those seeds will be watered by perhaps somebody else or us, ourselves, and then it will bear fruit. But then check it out now. It says, his leaf will not wither away. Given this idea of perseverance. Multiply your faith in God by preserving for God. I don't understand it all, but if you're truly born again, you will truly, you will truly endure till the end. The idea that if you have sincerely, generally come to faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what trials come your way, no matter what scoffing or ridiculing or whatever comes to your doorstep, you will persevere. So the idea is simply this, is that when we are connected to the right source, we will have the energy, we will have the nutrients to continue on for the glory of God. But 
If your source is, is associating with these ungodly sinners as verse 1 spoke about, if that's your source, well, you might endure for a little while. But when the winds begin to blow and the storm begins to rage, you will fall by the wayside. Remember, Jesus, I think, is, is, is possibly having Psalm number one in his mind when, in Matthew 13 when he's giving that parable of the sower, how some is sowing seed in this type of soil, some sowing on this type of soil. But, but aren't you glad that even when we sow seed, God is overseeing all that? And he allows somebody to sow seed in our life that fell into our hearts and it was good, solid soil and it, and it began to produce. And now here we are in this raging culture that's shaking their fists up at God and saying, God, we don't believe in you. God, we don't believe your word. And God, we don't believe that your son is the saving way to redeem man. Well, my friends, let's persevere. Because we know that if we're tied into the right source, we've got power. And we will prosper. Check it out. The last part of verse 3 gives us the idea of whatever you do, it's going to prosper. Now, I think some of our brothers and sisters who are underneath this umbrella of Christianity are going to come to a text like this and say that this means whatever you touch, all it's going to flourish in this life. Well, let me remind you that that might be true for some, but it may not be true for others. And, and I think ultimately we, we do prosper as a believer, but that does not necessarily mean that we're going to prosper in full fashion right here. Because I think some people are going to come to this last part of verse 3 and say that, hey, if you know Jesus, if you're, if you're tied into his, to the source of God and you're plugged into the right thing, that you're going to just prosper, you're going to get rich, you're going to be healthy, you're going to do all these things, and you're going to live like a king on this earth. Well, not necessarily the, the truth. Because what about John the Baptist? What about our Messiah? Of all people, didn't even own a home. Yes, there might be some who will prosper with means of money. Yes, there might be some who might prosper with homes to acquire. There will be some who will be homeless. There will be some who will live in poverty their whole life. And this verse is not saying that we will prosper in only the temporal world in which we live. I believe it is connecting us to the next life. Because if our source is God, we'll be able to multiply for eternity. And that we will ultimately prosper in the age to come. And that's the thing about the Old Testament. There's times in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament where it speaks about this idea of prosperity. But at times, it's not referring to this life. It's referring to the, millennium, the millennial age and at times referring to the eternal age. So here, we understand that if God is our source of blessedness and we believe in the promises of the Messiah, that we're connected to the right source, and while we may not experience full prosperity right now in this life, we know that God has promised us full prosperity in the age to come in the glorious place the Bible calls heaven. Multiply your faith by God, in God by prospering in Him, by persevering in Him and producing for Him. But we can't think of this text without thinking of the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 7. I believe the psalmist is ahead of his time 
And the psalmist is referring to the, the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life that Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And, and I want to show you this verse. It's on the screen. Listen to these words. Jesus said, now remember, Jesus is preaching in this context his Sermon on the Mount. He's on top of the Mount of Beatitudes, which overlooks the Sea of Galilee, a very beautiful scene. And there he's preaching him about these Beatitudes in chapter number 5 and, 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 and going to these Old Testament passages and, and elaborating on those Old Testament texts. And then in chapter 6, he's talking about how we are called to give, we're called to fast, and we're called to pray. And he transitions there about seeking God first of all else. And then in chapter 7, he begins to focus about a narrow way that leads to God and how there's few people that find it and a broad way that leads to destruction and many people are in droves going that way. He said this, enter in the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be who will go after that. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be who will find it. Do you want the blessed life? Do you want to live a life that is blessed? Well, the blessed life is only found in Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What's up, guys? Brian here again just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.